Did you know that Earth's land and ocean ecosystems absorb about half of the carbon dioxide we emit each year? Take mangroves. They're one of the best carbon sinks around. They store carbon in their long, thick roots and branches and trap it away in the sediments and soils around them. Or grasslands. They hide away most of their carbon underground, in their tangled web of roots, and in the soil, which is another carbon sink in and of itself. The Earth has an incredible capacity to sequester carbon. But what if it could absorb even more, with the help of the critters living on the land and in the sea? Well, a recent study in the journal Nature Climate Change found that restoring the populations of just a handful of animals, like gray wolves, bison, and sea otters, for example, if that could be done, the Earth could capture nearly six and a half more gigatons of CO2 each year. This idea of restoring wildlife is called rewilding. Joining me to talk about this study and what rewilding could look like is co-author of the study. Dr. Tricia Atwood, Associate Professor at Utah State University, based in Logan, Utah. Welcome to Science Friday. Thank you, Ira. Um, I'm super excited to be here. Nice to have you. Let's start with a definition. What does rewilding mean? So for us, we specifically um, called it trophic rewilding in our paper because we're interested in some of the higher order animals. So things like wolves, sharks. Um, so trophic rewilding is to restore or protect animal functional roles in ecosystems. And what that essentially means is either protecting or restoring animals to ecologically meaningful densities so that they're doing things in their ecosystems like they used to before humans kind of came on the scene. And when you say they're doing things, how do these animals then fit into the carbon cycle by what they're doing? <laughs> yeah. So especially top predators, so things like sharks and wolves, um, they can have amazing influences on the behavior of their prey. Um, their prey oftentimes eats things like plants. We all know that plants are a really important aspect for accumulating carbon or sequestering carbon. So the way that these predators change the behavior of these herbivores uh, can influence how much carbon is being accumulated and then stored long term within these ecosystems. So if you have the bigger animals eating the smaller animals that eat the plants, then the plants remain. Yeah, exactly. Uh, there's a list of animals in this study that could have the most impact on carbon storage. Tiger sharks are on it. What other critters are on that list? And how do you decide on them? So we decided on this list based off of some research that has already been done and shown that these animals can significantly increase carbon accumulation or carbon storage within the habitats that they live in. And so the animals that we have kind of chosen are wildebeest. Uh, wildebeest are really important because they can eat a lot of grasses and that helps suppress fires in savannas. Sea otters. Sea otters are really great. A lot of people know the story about sea otters coming back and how bringing back sea otters uh, helps suppress sea urchins along the coast. And as a result, we got our amazing kelp forest back, especially along the coast of California. Wolves. Most people are familiar with Yellowstone and, and bringing wolves back and how that's really changed Yellowstone as a whole ecosystem by influencing the behavior and the densities of elk and other deer. Tiger sharks, as you already mentioned. Yeah, tell me. Tell me about the tiger sharks. <laughs> yeah, tiger sharks. Um, 
Other animals, their prey are scared of sharks, just like we are. And uh, sometimes they choose um, herbivores, things like dugongs and sea turtles and herbivorous fish will choose to not forage in an area or forage at different times because they are fearful of sharks and, and being caught out um, by a shark and, of course, eaten by it. So that can change where they forage and how they forage. You know, I never thought of that. Yeah, it's a it's a really cool study. That's kind of kind kind of interesting. I mean, so so they they're scared of uh, some of the animals, so they don't go eat the vegetation where those animals are hanging out. Yeah, exactly. And and we've seen this in places um, like Shark Bay, Western Australia, which is aptly named because it has uh, some of the highest tiger shark densities in the world. And we see there that sea turtles and dugongs forage very differently in what we call these high risk areas where they're likely to lose um, in a fight against a shark. Um, and they instead forage in these more safer areas uh, where they can see a shark coming more and evade a shark if one is starting to attack them. That is cool. Now let's talk about how big of an impact rewilding can make on the climate. Give me some numbers or a timeline. Yeah, so um, you kind of hit it on the head earlier. So we kind of gave a back of the napkin or, or first kind of calculation of if we were to bring back um, or protect just a handful of animals. So this included wildebeest, sea otters, wolves, sharks, uh, many pelagic fish species that have uh, declined due to intense fishing, African elephants, bison, and baling whales, that we could sequester about six and a half, six point four 6.4 gigatons of CO2 per year more. And that's really significant because that number is extremely close to the 6.5 gigatons of CO2 per year that we would need in negative emissions to keep us below two degrees Celsius if we were to reach net zero. That's amazing. And, and do any climate models account for the animals? They don't really currently. There's a couple of new models coming out where people are interested in including animals. But traditionally, NASA models, all of our predictions about climate change, none of those include animals. I understand now. How, how do you figure out then the exact impact one species could have? It seems like... <laughs> That's, that takes a lot of math. It definitely takes a lot of math, um, but I assure you it takes no more math than what we're already doing in terms of figuring out plants, especially microbes. You think we're already including microbes into these calculations and we can't even see them. Right, right. I understand that. Uh, what about ecosystems? Are there some better at carbon storage than others? Yes, I'm a little bit biased because I'm a marine scientist. And so um, I, I, of course, uh, love talking about marine systems. Um, and it just so happens that uh, coastal vegetated systems, which include seagrasses, tidal marshes, and mangrove forests, are some of the best at storing carbon, both in terms of how fast they accumulate carbon and how long they can store it. So they can store carbon sometimes 100 times faster than a temperate forest can, and they can store it for tens of thousands of years. That is, that's just amazing. <laughs> so, okay, let's get down to practicality, if, if I may. How would this work? I imagine it's more complicated than just moving some animals around. Yes, exactly. It's um, a very complicated thing. Rewilding, of course, has... A lot of other aspects that we have to think about um, that include both the animals and the ecosystems, but also the communities 
that are around those. And by communities, I mean people. And who is going to benefit and who may not benefit from protecting or restoring an animal population. And so we have to think carefully about what the organism is that we're going to rewild. Can it go back to its ecosystem in, in a way that we think it is going to? Or has that habitat been so modified by other human activities that even if we bring that species back, it's not going to have the same effect that it used to have because hmm. that system is no longer the same. Okay, so give me some examples of, of rewilding that have gone right, that have worked. Yeah, so uh, one example is wildebeest. And so wildebeest uh, populations severely declined as a result of a disease that was actually brought in through cattle. And because wildebeest populations declined so much, we saw that savannas um, overgrew with grasses. And those grasses catch fire really, really easily. And they uh, help things burn longer and hotter. And as a result, the burning of that grass led to higher CO2 emissions. When the wildebeest started to come back after we protected their populations is we saw that fires were more suppressed in savannas. And as a result, those savannas were holding more carbon than when the wildebeest populations were really low. That's interesting. Uh, you know, I've always seen film, movies, videos of sea otters frolicking in kelp forests. I mean, are, are they also an example of things that could go right? Yes, sea otters are absolutely a organism that could go right um, or has gone right. So sea otters love to live in kelp forests and they were hunted almost to extinction uh, as a result of their fur. And after they were put on the endangered species list and their population started to come back, we saw that kelp forests also started to come back. And that was because the sea otters, as their populations grew, were starting to eat more and more sea urchins. Um, sea urchins' favorite food along the coast oftentimes is kelp. Um, and so when those sea otters weren't there, the sea urchins were eating all the kelp. But now that the sea otters are back, they're keeping those sea urchins in check and our kelp forests are beginning to flourish. Wow, who would have thought? You know, you don't think about one or two levels up or down the chain, do you? Yeah. It really, it really helps. Are, are any of the animals that we're talking about on this list endangered? Does that make a difference? Yes, it does make a difference. Um, so we do have some endangered animals. We also have some animals that are protected through other policies. So for example, sea otters are protected through the Marine Mammal Protection Act. And baleen whales are also protected as part of that. And that's one of the animals that we also listed as being significant. Mm. That influences it because it suggests that there's already policies in place saying that we need to be focusing on restoring these populations uh, to some set level, to some trigger level. And so that's great because it means that we have already laid the foundations for doing so. It's much harder to probably bring back species that aren't listed because there's not policies right. in place to, right. to kind of force people to have to do that. And some of these organisms, of course, are... are uh, somewhat contentious in bringing back things like sharks and wolves. Yeah. Well, that's what I was going to ask next about cases where rewilding has gone wrong. Are there cases of uh, there? Yeah. So wolves in Yellowstone has been a trigger point for um, a lot of states that 
that butt up against Yellowstone National Park, especially because we have ranchers that are very concerned about wolves moving outside of the park and starting to decimate their livestock, which of course is really important for their livelihoods. And so we can't control the boundaries of animals and we can rewild them, but we can't force them to stay in natural habitats. We're not creating a zoo. And there is a chance that they will move outside of those habitats and we will get into human wildlife conflict. Yeah, yeah. I want to get back to something you mentioned before, and that's the uh, huge social component in rewilding, especially when people's businesses or livelihoods are affected, like if they're ranchers or fishers or for indigenous nations that have their own practices. How do you take all of this? How do you take all of them into consideration? Yeah, one of the most important thing is whenever making a management or conservation decision is to make sure that all of the stakeholders are at the table. That includes your ranchers, your conservationists, your fishermen, if you're talking about marine systems, um, any indigenous cultures that um, would be influenced by that decision, and make sure that everybody there has an equal voice so that we can really look at what are the potential problems what is the potential gain? Is there any way that we can potentially mitigate the problems that we're seeing? So for example, with the wolves, we might be able to give some ranchers um, what we call uh, cattle dogs that will actually help protect their flocks against wolves. So that's like a win-win situation. Yeah. And, that, and can, you get, can you get more of those like protecting marine areas? Um, we do have some that actually protects uh, seabirds. Um, so um, you could put them um, out there. So we have, uh, I think Australia it is, actually has uh, dogs that protect penguins. Is that right? Yeah. So they- I've never heard of dogs protecting penguins. Yeah. Yeah. So they have, um, they have guard dogs basically that live on these islands with them and their entire job is to- drive away um, foxes and anything that's trying to eat um, what they're protecting. This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Flato. You know, you've gone from uh, America to Australia to see creatures all over the world. It does seem like this really has to be a global effort, right, for it to work. Yes, we certainly, our list certainly includes animals from almost every continent. Um, but the U.S., and some of these bigger countries, Australia, can do a lot with the land that they already have. The U.S. has a lot of wild lands still available that we can use to help rewild animals without running into conflict with already built cities um, or urbanization. Yeah. And so the U.S. is U.S. Canada is in a great position to begin rewilding um, with less effects than places like like England. Right. And, and you're sort of saying also that we're just not going to solve the CO2 problem by just sequestering it, you know, artificially. We need nature to help us. Yes. Yeah. So we definitely have to reach net zero fossil fuel CO2 emissions um, or or all of this is is, you know, somewhat pointless in terms of, a, of carbon. So that means stopping uh, CO2 emissions from the burning of fossil fuels. Um, but after we do that, and, and we really will do that, after we accomplish that, we need negative emissions strategies. And that means we need to suck CO2 back out of the atmosphere and store it long term. 
And this is where nature can play a key role. And we call these strategies either nature-based solutions or natural climate solutions. Well, Dr. Atwood, we're very happy to hear about these solutions. And thank you for your research and for taking time to be with us today. Yeah, great. Thank you so much, Ira. And and, um, we're super excited to talk about this. and, And we love that you guys were interested in this story. You're quite welcome. Dr. Tricia Atwood, Associate Professor at Utah State University in Logan, Utah.